Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading is from John chapter 6, beginning in verse 16 through verse 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because of a strong wind blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that through the revelation that you've given us in Scripture and through the the illumination that your Spirit gives to our hearts that we can actually come to know you. That we can come to, to see you, to sense your presence and to be in relationship with you. That though you are infinite, internal, so far beyond our ability to grasp or contain, God, you come to us. You reveal yourself to us. And we can truly know you. Lord, and we pray that um, you would press this truth into our heart. We pray that your spirit would be to us a comforter in this place. And I pray that we would do more than just learn information or theological truths about Jesus. I pray that by your spirit, we would encounter him. That we would see him. That we would know him. That we would be changed by him, informed by him to be God's holy people. That with our lives, we would not only believe this gospel, that we would actually declare and display it with our lives, God. So we commit this time to you. We invite your presence. We ask you to be the teacher in this room. And it is in Jesus' mighty name that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. You can take a seat. So I have a a lot of friends um, from various moments of my life that are in town this weekend. They're in town for a wedding. I'm actually going to be leaving and going to officiate it later this day. And um, there there are guys that I I spent a lot of my kind of formative years with, kind of growing up with them, got to know them, um, got to go into ministry together with them. And um, whenever I went into ministry, it was about 12 years ago, first time I ever took a job as uh, a member of a church staff. Several other young guys about my age came on staff about the same time. And uh, we all did various things. Some of us were graphic designers and kind of administrators. And uh, one of us uh, was a worship leader, and his name was Patrick. And since there was not really that many young guys on staff at this church, and there hadn't been for a long time, something very interesting began to happen. Because Patrick was the most visible of the young guys that were on staff, Something very peculiar began to happen, and that was all of the young guys just kind of got conflated into being Patrick, okay? So we'd be out, uh, we'd be talking to people, greeting people, getting to know people, and people would say, hey, how are you doing, Patrick? Great job leading worship, Patrick. And, you know, this was kind of amusing for a while, like, I mean, it's kind of funny, um, but it lasted about a decade, okay? So it got old. Um, eventually, you know, after you start getting to know people, serve them, love them, uh, you get tired of being called Patrick. And, you know, we would make jokes to each other, um, those of us that were not Patrick, and we would say, you know what we need to do? We just need to be a jerk to people. That way people just think Patrick's a jerk, you know, and uh, they'll, they'll stop t- wanting to talk to Patrick, and we can kind of go about our own lives. But we didn't do that. Um, we were all nice, and we were all kind to people. Um, But this kind of just had this unbelievable enduring factor uh, of being labeled with this name. We would call it getting Patrick. You know, it's like, yeah, I got Patrick the other day. And um, 
Even the other day, I was out at a coffee shop here in town, um, been serving here as lead pastor for quite some time. And um, I, I ran into a person that I knew and asked him about his family, about his life, how he was doing. We had a good, like, 30-minute conversation about life. Um, Patrick, meanwhile, lives 2,000 miles away, no longer here, no longer part of anything. And uh, sure enough, right at the end of the conversation, I say, you know, it was good talking to you. He says, nice talking to you, Patrick. It's like, no matter what I do, I can't break this mold. It's, it's impossible. And obviously they don't care about getting to know the real Patrick or the real us. It was just something that happened. And just because obviously you call someone Patrick doesn't mean they're Patrick. And two, one of the big ideas that we're exploring in this particular sermon series is just because you call something Jesus doesn't mean he's Jesus. Just because you pray to something that is called Jesus doesn't mean it's Jesus. And in fact, we're kind of getting into a really dangerous area in our culture where Jesus begins to kind of just be a term that refers to a general, fuzzy, spiritual feeling about God. And rather than actually encountering the risen Son of God, the Lord of all creation, as He is in His awesome glory, um, a a lot of times our society kind of lends itself to a very Ricky Bobby kind of of Jesus-of-my-own-preferences version of God. And, and scripture is here to, to confront us and to reshape us. And we need this. Um, this is a New York Times columnist. His name's Ross Douthat. He, he wrote a book called Bad Religion. It's a great book. And he says this. He says, America's problem isn't too much religion or too little of it. It's bad religion. The slow motion collapse of traditional Christianity and the rise of a variety of destructive pseudo-Christianities in its place. So even an intellectual that works for the New York Times is recognizing, you know what? We, we need to encounter Jesus as he is, um, to, to rediscover who he is. And, and that's why we turn to the word of God to encounter the real Jesus. And we're in this series right now called Signs of the Sun. In particular, what we're looking at is the gospel according to John with particular reference to the miracles of Jesus and what those miracles say about Jesus. Because John was a man who actually knew the real Jesus. He didn't just kind of have a version of him that he liked to pray to or that he was comfortable with. He, he met the guy. He knew the man. He saw his face. He heard his voice. He experienced displays of his power. And John knows something about Jesus. He knows that he's not just a great moral teacher. He knows that Jesus is God. He knows that Jesus is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. That when we could never ever work our way to God, God through Jesus has come to us. God has come to us to rescue us. And that when we see him in scripture, we can believe in him and we can be changed by him. And in John's particular project, he really emphasizes the miracles of Jesus. Not just miracles, but he has a particular word that he uses. That word is sign. It's the Greek word semeon. And through that word, John is saying that the miracles aren't just random magic tricks. They're more than that. This is what D.A. Carson says about John's signs. He says, Jesus' miracles were never simply naked displays of power, still less neat conjuring tricks to impress the masses, but signs, significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. And John's showing us that if you want to see Jesus as he is, not just for who you want him to be, not just who you would prefer him to be, you need to behold the signs. What they say, what they reveal about Jesus. And today we're going to be looking at the fifth sign of Jesus, and that is the walking of water. 
This is a very small paragraph. It's a very small episode, but it's loaded with spiritual truth about the character and nature of who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. And so we're going to work through this text and unpack it by asking three very simple questions. These are three questions that we've asked of every single miracle in the book of John. Number one, what did Jesus do? Number two, how did Jesus do it? And number three, why did Jesus do it? What did he do? How did he do it? And why did he do that? So let's take the first one. What did Jesus do? Let's kind of review the context of what has just happened. Now, for those of you who were here last week, and we were in the early part of John chapter 6. And this is actually the same day as that particular event. And it's been a busy day for Jesus. Jesus and his disciples have had a very eventful day of ministry. And in that day of ministry, Jesus has already performed one major sign. Now Jesus is retreating to the mountain to pray. His disciples are getting into their boat and they're going towards a city called Capernaum. And that city of Capernaum is kind of Jesus's home base of operation when he ministers to the region of Galilee. But this this moment and this context is actually pretty important because last week something pretty big happened. People were able to behold the sign of what Jesus did. And for the first time in the book of John, they actually begin to start connecting the dots. They see that Jesus really is more than just a great miracle worker. He is more than just a great teacher. Jesus is the Messiah. Because you see, Jesus fed thousands of people, the people of Israel, in the wilderness. And in this moment, he has revealed himself to be the anointed prophet of God. He is the one who speaks God's words of authority. He is the one who feeds God's people in the wilderness. He, in many ways, is showing himself to be the true and better Moses. He is the true Messiah that is going to lead God's people into deliverance, into true freedom. But in this next miracle, Jesus is going to show himself to be so much more. Because everybody was expecting a Messiah. The Jewish nation was yearning for it. They were under the tyranny of, of an empire and they wanted to be a free people. They wanted to have their own kingdom. And so they wanted someone as powerful as Moses. But they also wanted a mighty warrior king like David. And they're beginning to think maybe this Jesus is him. And so in verse 15, the people are actually about to take Jesus by force and make him king. But Jesus is showing them that they still have him wrong. Yes, he is the Messiah. But he's more than just the Messiah. He is so much more. Whenever Jesus is leaving, he goes to the mountain. His disciples ride on their boat. They ride into a storm. And Jesus comes to his people, but he comes to them walking on water. I mean, just this absurd display of supernatural force and power that completely redefines the paradigm of possibility of what could happen. In this moment, in other words, Jesus is not just showing that he is the Messiah. He's now showing that he is the Lord of all creation. This isn't just God's anointed leader that's going to come and deliver his people. This is God in flesh. This miracle testifies to not only the great power of Jesus, but that his power is transcendent. He, he defies the laws of nature as we know them. He doesn't stand against the rules of logic, but he is a Lord who rules and reigns over them. He doesn't stand against the laws of nature or science, but he does stand over them and rules and reigns over them because he is the sovereign creator. And he's beginning to testify to that reality and beginning to reveal that's who he really is. He's not just the Messiah. He is God in flesh come to be the Messiah. You see, whenever the disciples encounter this power, something 
really strange happens. They're, they're no longer excited. They're no longer joyous. They are no longer hopeful of expectation of what this Messiah is going to do. They're terrified because they are witnessing a divine display of power. They're witnessing God's force and it is absolutely overwhelming them. And into that context, Jesus speaks these words. He says, it is I, do not be afraid. And in the Koine Greek, the words are ego ami. Literally, what he said was, I am, do not be afraid. He's saying in this moment, guys, I'm not just the true and better Moses. I am the one who called Moses. I am the one who sent Moses. I am the God of Sinai. I am who I am. I exist. I am contingent upon nothing. I am eternal. I am infinite. I am completely sufficient in of myself. And I'm bigger than what your paradigm can contain. So in this moment, he just completely shatters their vision of who the Messiah is and who he's going to be. They're beginning to see this is not just any man. This is not just a great man. This is God. God in flesh. And there are moments in your journey with Jesus where he's going to need to shatter your paradigm of who you think God is. It's something that we very naturally do. We want to understand. We want to control. We want to be able to contain. And we even do this with our theology. And God, in his mercy, through his word and by his spirit, will oftentimes absolutely deconstruct who we think God is so that he can reconstruct him and reveal him as he truly is. And I encourage you, one one of the things that I I desperately pray for and I hope to foster, even just in the way we preach through books of the Bible as Redeemer, I want us to be a a church that loves the word of God. I I want us to devour scripture. I hope that you, you read the Bible on a daily basis as a way to come to know who God is. But There's a way that you can read the Bible and a way that you shouldn't read the Bible. And a lot of times in the Bible Belt, um, even those of us that are not really living Christian lives, we have very defined spiritual opinions. And so we have these theological ideas that we want to get right. And so our quiet times, our times of devotion will just devolve into us looking into the Bible, maybe some proof text that will prove our opinions right. So that when we get in that guy, that argument with that guy that that really we don't like, we can prove him wrong by pulling out a verse and slapping it on the table and saying, see, I'm right and you're wrong. Rather than just that, I, I encourage you, come to Scripture. Come before it humbly. Pray that the Holy Spirit would shape your heart and your mind and, and move upon you to shock you, to amaze you, to, to reveal to you the glorious reality of who this God is. Because he's better than you think he is. He's, he's so much more. He's so much more beyond anything that we could ever contain. And I think God desires to reveal himself to his people. He is a God that is so beyond our, our tiny little paradigms. And we live in a very, I think, cynical and very smug age. Um, we, we are foolish enough to be able to think in our society that if it doesn't fit under a microscope or if it doesn't really work with our scientific method, it must not be true. And so there's a lot of cynical voices in our society that say, well, obviously God's not there because we can't prove him with a scientific method. And this mindset was kind of displayed by a Russian cosmonaut. He was launched into space. He goes into orbit. And one of the first things that he says when he's out in orbit, he says, you know, I looked around and I didn't find God. So he must not exist. C.S. Lewis, who was just a really brilliant mind and a very, very intelligent person, 
very quickly quipped back. He said, that would be like Shakespeare, or Hamlet rather, looking up into his attic, crawling into his attic, looking around with a flashlight and saying, I didn't find Shakespeare, he must not exist. What C.S. Lewis was getting at is that we are creation. Our God is the creator. That we can never come to know him based off of our intellect or our moral effort or our power, the only way that we can actually come to know God as he is is if that that God, that author of creation, chooses to reveal himself to us, if he chooses, rather, to write himself into our story. That in Jesus, that's exactly what he has done. Which leads us to point number two, which is, how did Jesus do it? How did Jesus perform this miracle? What was the unique mannerism, and what does that say about this? Now, It's rather significant that there's this storm going on and it's on the water. And uh, a few months back, I actually uh, performed a wedding out on Virginia Beach. It was a beautiful beach, a beautiful area. But the day of the wedding, this massive storm rolled in onto the coast. It was the remnant of a hurricane. It had just been downgraded to a tropical storm. And I tell you what, when you see a massive storm roll in off of the ocean, it is terrifying. I mean, the, the ocean's powerful and big, and then when you see a, a big storm that's powerful and big, and you put it together with the ocean, you are very aware of just how small you are. And you see, this is what the, the disciples are experiencing right now, and it's in that moment. It's in that manner that Jesus chooses to come to his people. Jesus is a God that meets us in our darkness. He meets us in our struggle. He meets us in our fear. He meets us in our storm. It's such unbelievably good news. Because although he is transcendent, although he is glorious and holy and divine, he is a God that is also so near. That he meets us in our pain. That he understands, that he knows, that he ministers to us precisely where we hurt the most. Because guys, there are going to be moments, and you probably have these moments in your life. Where you're in the boat and the boat is rocky. The winds are rough. The storm is beginning to rage. And it feels like Jesus is nowhere to be seen. He's not, even in the, he's not asleep at the boat. He's not even in the boat. You're like, where are you? Do you see what I'm going through? Are you there? Do you, do you see what's happening to me? Do you, do you think I deserve this? Is, is, is there something that I've done wrong? Where are you? Have you forsaken me? Do you not see me? Do you not see the pain that I'm going through? Do you even care? We've been there. But God, through Jesus, answers that question in the most profound way possible. He shows us in Jesus that he does care, that he does see us. And more than just being aware and generally sympathetic to our pain, he is willing to come and endure it with us and for us. And that's such unbelievable news. One of the amazing things about this passage, when we kind of fill in some of the gaps by using some of the other gospel accounts. Matthew 14 actually shows us that there's something really profound about Jesus' emotional state as he performs this miracle. Matthew 14 actually begins with several of John the Baptist's disciples coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, we hate to break this to you, but your cousin, John, the man that you said is, is the most righteous man that has really ever lived and the most um, wonderful man that is a servant of God most high, he's been murdered. He's been murdered by a very wicked and selfish king. And Jesus, in that moment, 
invites his disciples to retreat into the wilderness. And even as they're retreating into the wilderness, crowds form around them. They're pursuing them. Jesus has compassion on them. He heals them. He teaches them. He feeds them. But even after he does that, he has to retreat to the mountain to pray with God. And I believe that shows us that that even Jesus, as a divine God, as a man, is grieving in this moment. He's grieving the death, not only a death, but a murder of a family member. He's grieving. He, He understands our pain. He doesn't just sympathize. He empathizes. He's been there. He knows what it feels like. And because of that, he's such an unbelievably effective comforter. He's one that can meet us in our need. He's one that can show us that there is hope when it feels like there's no hope. And I've seen this time and time again. I know this from scripture. I know this from experience. I know this from shepherding people through suffering. That God is a God who is near to the brokenhearted. He is near. That not only is he transcendent. He is a God that is so unbelievably kind and merciful. I mean, this is just an unbelievable God. This is what Timothy Keller says about him. Says Christianity alone among the world religions claims that God became uniquely and fully human in Jesus Christ and therefore knows firsthand despair, rejection, loneliness, poverty, bereavement, torture, and imprisonment. On the cross, he went beyond even the worst human suffering and experienced cosmic rejection and pain that exceeds ours as infinitely as his knowledge and power exceeds ours. God takes on our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. We can know that God is truly Emmanuel, God with us, even in our worst sufferings. If you are lonely, if you're in pain, if you're hurting, he knows. He knows how you feel. He is transcendent and he is glorious, but he is eminently near. Now, why does this matter? We're going to ask the third question and say, why did Jesus do it? Why did Jesus walk on the water to show us the mystery of this dual nature, that he is completely God, that he is completely man? Why is this so important? Theologians actually call this mystery of the dual nature of Christ, the hypostatic union, that God, that in Jesus, he is completely God and he is completely man. And not only is that important, it is of salvational importance that Jesus was totally God and totally man. Because without that dual nature, without him being that redeemer, we do not have a gospel. We do not have a salvation. Because a Messiah that was less than God and less than man would not be able to accomplish our redemption. And in seeing that, kind of helps us look at this little paragraph in a different way. Not only... Is it a paragraph telling us about an episode of Jesus' life? This account itself is a microcosm of the story of redemption itself. Because we see Jesus high and holy, lifted up, dwelling in perfect and joyous communion and union with his Father. And from that place of union and communion, he comes down to his people. When his people couldn't come to him, when his people could not, through their own effort, get to where they were going, Jesus comes to them. The I am walks upon the waters. He comes to his people when his people could not come to him. He endures true darkness 
Not just the darkness of night, but the darkness of death on a cross. He endures the storm of God's wrath and God's judgment. And he chooses of his own will to get into our boat. And through his presence, we can overcome fear. Through his presence, we can be guided home. This is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That as a man, he endures the darkness of death on the cross. But as God, he is able to triumph over death. And impute that victory to us. That as a man, he enters into our waters. But as God, he stands over them. That when we could never come to him, he comes to us. That is the beautiful mystery that is Christianity. The beautiful mystery that is the Christian gospel. That he is the I am that has come to us. So Redeemer, as we behold the sign of the Son, as we see that Jesus is not just a good man, not just a good teacher, not just a Messiah, he is the I am. He is transcendent, he is holy, he is infinite. Let us worship this God with a sense of awe and amazement. Especially on Pentecost Sunday as we remember the gift of the Holy Spirit given to us, implanted within us. May we celebrate that this infinite eternal God is near. That he's close to us. That he pursues us. That he is our comforter and our keeper. And we, may be, we behold Jesus as the God-man. Who alone could be our savior. Who alone is our redeemer. And in that place of revelation would we be a people that worship him. For who he is and what he has done. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, as we come before your table and as we celebrate Holy Communion, I pray that as we see this bread that shows us that you have given the body of your son, Jesus, as we take this cup that shows us that you have poured out his blood that we might be cleansed and made whole, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would make this so real to us. That we would taste and that we would see that you were good. God, would you in this moment, by the power of your Holy Spirit, allow us to have some type of glimpse of your awesome transcendence. Your, your absolute, eternal nature. And God, would we also be amazed by the fact that you are a God that is drawn near to us. That in this moment, in this sacred ritual, would we remember that the word has become flesh and dwelt among us. Would we meditate on the cross? Let it, would it guide us to our need for salvation, but also may it be a place where we rest together in your amazing grace, Jesus. God, so thank you that you are completely God, you are completely man, and that you are our Redeemer. We love you, we worship you. It is in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.